When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Nobody ever asked me about something like Hallmark. I do this all day. All they ever want me to come and talk about is the end of the world. I'm like, I would really much rather talk about Hallmark. Tressie McMillan Cottom is a sociologist. She mostly studies serious stuff. But when it comes to Hallmark movies, she has a weak spot. Well, I, of course, have an entire notebook full of Hallmark movie ideas. I mean, if I'm going to sit there and watch them, (laughs) I'm going to rewrite them. There's a large fan base out there of people like Tressie who love to watch Hallmark movies. Maybe a little ironically, or maybe with sincerity, or maybe sometimes a little bit of both. One of the things that Hallmark does give me is, of course, I get to turn my brain off. Hallmark has made hundreds of these movies, and it cranks out a few dozen more each holiday season. With every passing year, the Hallmark movie universe, as Tressie calls it, seems to get more cultural traction. It's become the focus of adoring tweets and blog posts and podcasts. Like every good cult. I mean, does anybody know when they signed up for the cult? Just one day you live on the compound. Hallmark movies are gentle affairs. Nothing truly disturbing ever happens. Passions and furies are muted, squeezed into an easy-to-digest piece of holiday-adjacent commerce. Which, when you think about it, has always been Hallmark's bread and butter. Experience a magical movie inspired by Hallmark artist Jeff Greenlee. This is what Christmas is supposed to look like. It will fulfill your deepest wish. Only if you know what your heart really wants. With magic that will change their Christmases forever. That magic, it's all around us. Barbara Niven, Holly Robinson P. Can you see a link between the, the ethos of the typical Hallmark movie and like the ethos of the typical Hallmark greeting card? Oh, yeah, they're selling the same thing. Nostalgia. All right. Uh, A greeting card is about making nostalgia a commodity, not get like all critical theory on you. But, you know, they they take emotions and they turn them into an exchange, you know, a pre-written message that captures what you feel. That's what a greeting card is. And so in the same way, the Hallmark movie universe is about nostalgia. Hallmarks is a particular kind of nostalgia for an imaginary time when there was no social conflict. In Hallmark movies and in Hallmark greeting cards, there are no overt politics. But in real life, no one can escape politics, not even the Hallmark Corporation. I saw a story recently about the Hallmark PAC, Political Action Committee, withdrawing their donations from some of the Republican senators who had supported contesting uh, the Electoral College certification. And I thought that was fascinating. As the Hawley fallout continues, some of the biggest names in business are distancing themselves financially. Hallmark statement says the recent actions of the two do not reflect the company's values. The card company is even going a step further with this, though. It's asking the Hawley campaign to give back $7,000 in donations that have already been given. In January, Hallmark, which is based in Kansas City, asked Missouri Senator Josh Hawley and Kansas Senator Roger Marshall to return campaign donations from the company, stating that Hallmark believes in the 
peaceful transition of power. Which doesn't seem like a radical stand, but for Hallmark, it was genuinely bold. For more than a century now, Hallmark has been a tightly held Midwestern business that's mastered the art of turning feelings into revenue. But can it succeed in an era when emotions might be getting too big to fit in an envelope? As we approach Valentine's Day 2021, what sort of tender missive is Hallmark sending us? I'm Seth Stevenson. Welcome to Thrilling Tales of Modern Capitalism. Today on the show, Hallmark and the selling of sentiment. When you care enough to vend the very best. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey... Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I grew up in Kansas City, and I've always been aware of the cultural dominance of Hallmark in that town. How was it a presence in your life? Uh, You've obviously never grown up in Kansas City, dude. Barry Shank is a professor of comparative studies. He wrote a book about greeting cards called A Token of My Affection. There were people on the suburban street that I grew up in, a couple of houses up and a couple of houses down that worked for Hallmark. Hallmark was one of the actually, you know, and probably still is one of the best companies to work for in Kansas City. The story of Hallmark begins in 1910, when Joyce Clyde Hall, known as J.C., left his little town in Nebraska and stepped off a train in, yes, Kansas City, holding two boxes of postcards. He began selling them out of his room at the YMCA. Hallmark Green Card starts as a postcard company. This is part of the postcard craze that happened in the first decade of the 20th century. The boom in postcards was in large part a result of America's growing mobility. So you get people traveling on trains for leisure and then wanting to send evidence that they had been places, and that's what the postcards did. But there were a couple of problems with the postcard business. First, there wasn't much barrier to entry. A zillion postcard companies soon sprang up selling low-quality postcards very cheaply. And the other problem? Writing on a postcard wasn't private. So what if you could get something a little fancier than a postcard and put it inside an envelope for privacy, but still keep the message short, not write a letter, and still have some of the work done for you with a pre-printed image and maybe a sentimental phrase? That'd be a great way to reach out to someone without a ton of effort. But now, how about instead of linking it to your travels, like a postcard, You link your note to an occasion. Voila, the greeting card, which became the next big trend. J.C. Hall and his brothers, who'd followed him to Kansas City, jumped on the greeting card bandwagon in a big way. They used the proceeds from their successful postcard business to buy a printing plant in 1915. And they began to sell greeting cards, dividing them into two tracks, birthdays and condolences and such year-round, and then seasonal cards for specific holidays. And if there weren't enough holidays, well... Just make some new ones. During the 1910s and 1920s, the greeting card industry, along with the candy industry and the flower industry, participated in the creation of multiple holidays throughout the calendar year. 
Mother's Day was an early example of a created holiday. Father's Day was created when the awkwardness of making special day cards for fathers on Mother's Day just came too um, impossible to ignore, so they had to create a Father's Day. In 1928, the hall started to advertise in Ladies Home Journal and on radio shows. Your local Hallmark dealer and the makers of Hallmark greeting cards, H-A-L-L-M-A-R-K, the greeting cards of quality, bring you your old and beloved friend, Tony Wan, with greetings from his radio scrapbook. In 1932, they signed a pioneering deal to put Disney characters on cards. Mickey Mouse was just four years old at the time. Hallmark would later license popular art from many other sources, ranging from Peanuts comic strips to Salvador Dali. In 1944, the company's longtime slogan first appeared, when you care enough to send the very best. It was boastful, but also a little guilt-trippy. The implication was that any other card meant you didn't quite care as much. After decades of very successfully running Hallmark, J.C. Hall stepped down in 1966 and was replaced by his son, Don. And Don did something you might not expect with a company based on paper products and sentimental messages. He went high-tech. J.C. had always paid close attention to the messages and images that were printed on his cards, and how and where they were distributed. But when the computer age arrived, Hallmark could quantify those decisions using hard data. In the 60s, Hallmark bought in big with computers and started keeping computer records of what was actually selling and analyzing the sentiments and analyzing the images for, you know, just creating simple spreadsheets. But the spreadsheet was an innovative idea in the late 1960s and early 1970s, keeping track of the actual sales of the combination of image and sentiment over time was the main thing that established sort of the dominance of a company like Hallmark over the other competitors and made it so that they were the ones who became nationally known and lasted for 50, 60, 70, 80 years. So someone buys a Hallmark Valentine's card for their sweetheart, and Hallmark feeds that information into a spreadsheet to help it make decisions. It's not a super romantic process. But let's step back for a second. This whole business of breeding cards is, when you think about it, a little weird. Greeting cards sort of uncomfortably highlight the inadequacy that we often feel when it comes to expressing our intimate emotions. A lot of us would rather just give up and pay somebody else to do it. The possibility that we could actually develop a language of personal, deep, meaningful communication with each other, you know, who has the time to do that? Who has the skills to do that? We don't, you know? And so we outsource our feelings to a bunch of writers and artists working for a big company in Kansas City. This isn't new. As far back as the 1700s, there were things you could buy called Valentine Writers, which were lists of nice things to say in a note to your lover, which you could then copy out in your own handwriting. Hallmark is a 20th century version of this old trick. And for lots of people, it makes sense. Maybe you write poetry to your boo on Valentine's Day, or maybe you compose a perfect note to comfort your bereaved coworker. But if you're the kind of person who's eager to express your emotions using your own original language, well, you're the exception. Most people are using the words that are around them all the time, and they're happy to use the words that are around them all the time. And what Hallmark did was find a way to get words that mattered to people who didn't feel like they had the eloquence 
but knew that they had to say something on Valentine's Day. It was an obligation. So greeting cards solved this messy problem people had with expressing emotions. But greeting cards also served another purpose. Most Valentine's cards, most Christmas cards, most Mother's Day cards, what really happens to them? They get put up on the mantle. They get displayed. They get shown. You could say they were the social media of their day. What they're supposed to do is demonstrate, really materialize for a public viewing, the existence of this social-emotional relationship. If you think about the modern analog of this, it's Facebook, a way to sort of materially manifest the people you're friends with. A Christmas card list was a lot like your friend list. And yes, people could defriend you or be defriended from one Christmas to the next. The pre-printed sentiments on Hallmark cards also made it quick and easy to maintain connections, the way a like button or a hastily shared meme save us the effort of crafting an original message. But as that analogy suggests, Hallmark was doing a job that would eventually migrate onto the internet. And even before Facebook, Hallmark's business was facing competition from email, which provided a cheap and instantaneous way to send someone a quick note. With the rise of email and and other electronic communications, it became really necessary for them to develop alternative strategies for marketing sentiment, which again, Hallmark was better at than anybody else. Hallmark had diversified over time. In 1973, it launched a line of Christmas ornaments that were a big hit. In 1984, it bought the Crayola Crayon Company, which meshed with Hallmark's family-friendly image. But greeting cards were the heart of Hallmark's business. And as card sales declined in the 1990s, the company was driven to find other channels, if you will, in which to express its core competence, which is putting a tidy bow on emotions. I wonder if you remember the first Hallmark Christmas movie you saw. Oh, now that's a good question. Uh, It was definitely one with a blonde woman. That does not narrow it down. (laughs) More from Tressie McMillan-Cottom when we come back. First of all, Merry Christmas to you all. I do hope you haven't sent your children to bed, because actually this is an opera for children. In 1951, Hallmark sponsored a live TV special on NBC. It was a Christmas-themed opera called A Mall and the Night Visitors. Are you a real king? Yes. It was tasteful, family-friendly, and holiday-adjacent. All very on brand. And you, little boy, what do you do? I was a shepherd, I had a flock of sheep, but my mother's soul. Hallmark cards, when you care enough to send the very best, presents the Hallmark Hall of Fame. In this, our 14th season, it is again our aim to present television entertainment worthy of your Hallmark continued to sponsor classy TV events like this for decades under the banner Hallmark Hall of Fame. These were marketing efforts meant to generate goodwill for the greeting card business. But when the greeting card business began to slip, Hallmark realized that TV might not just be a way to gin up publicity, but also a way to gin up ancillary profits. 
In the 1990s, everybody was launching cable channels. The Food Network, HGTV. And in 1998, Hallmark got in the game, buying a struggling religious network called Odyssey and renaming it the Hallmark Channel. At first, it just aired the Hallmark Hall of Fame back catalog and reruns of other family-friendly fare. But then Hallmark started making its own original Christmas movies. Name? Chris. Chris Kringle. See, now you're just messing with me. Junior, it's Chris Kringle Jr. The first one was in 2002. It was called Santa Jr. Santa Claus's son gets arrested for trespassing while delivering toys and is helped by a public defender played by semi-famous actress Lauren Hawley. I had a weird dream last night. Weird? Oh. It was Christmas, and I had been crying my eyes out over that loser, Brian, and I'd fallen asleep. And in the dream, something woke me, and there was Santa Claus. And I started crying again. And then he Homer kept making movies like this and started cranking out dozens of them each year. By 2011, the channel was running its Countdown to Christmas Marathon of round-the-clock Christmas rom-coms, most of them set in small towns full of snowy charm and Hallmark Christmas ornaments. Our firm's biggest client, he's got his heart set on a piece of property in your hometown of Deerfield. My eyes deceive me? Is this an optical illusion? Good to see you, Dustin. Does Dustin still do the Christmas scavenger hunt? Yeah, he's the reigning champion. Oh, that's right. You guys were in love, I remember. Dad, he broke my heart. The hunt starts tomorrow. These movies have attracted a gigantic fan base. So big that the Hallmark Channel is now routinely the number one cable network for a big chunk of November and December. And Hallmark's slate of Christmas films keeps getting more and more ambitious. And you can tell that like, they've given them a little bit more budget, you know. They don't spend half the movie at the same gazebo. Sociologist Tressie McMillan-Cottom mostly watches Hallmark movies to turn her brain off. But the cultural critic in her can't help but remark upon the contours of the Hallmark movie universe. I think there are a couple of elements to the Hallmark compact with their audience. There won't be any uncomfortable conversations, whether that is about race, class, sexuality, whatever. Um, there's no capitalism, for example, right? There, there are no negative aspects to the economy. There's nothing like that. Hallmark didn't feature Black leads in a Christmas movie until 2018. Its female protagonists often give up high-powered careers to settle down with a man. Hallmark's movies are like Hallmark's cards. Small C conservative, Midwestern nice, rounding the nasty edges off of unruly emotions. The cards are that way because people want to express themselves inoffensively. The movies are that way because advertisers want to express themselves inoffensively. They're like this because they're trying to sell you dish soap. With its Christmas movies, Hallmark is making a very specific offer to advertisers. We can promise you eyeballs and we can promise you they're happy. They haven't just finished watching like an interracial couple you know, have a negative experience with the police, and then, oops, here comes Todd Penn, right? No, they're in a pretty good mood for you, and I think that's got to be really attractive to their advertisers. Recently, though, Hallmark has run into trouble when it's tried so hard to be inoffensive, it ends up offending. After major public backlash, the Hallmark Channel is reversing its controversial decision to pull ads featuring a lesbian couple kissing at the altar. During the 2019 Christmas movie season, Hallmark initially declined to air an ad featuring two brides kissing at a same-sex wedding, calling it too controversial. Advocates for gay and lesbian representation protested, 
why should Hallmark's soft-focused romantic fantasy be off-limits to them? In the end, Hallmark did run the ad and apologized. Its CEO resigned amid the kerfuffle. Hallmark now seems bent on atoning, but Tressie McMillan Cottom says they're doing it in a very tamped-down, Hallmarky way. They had their first gay couple in the movie universe this holiday season, but to make that palatable, the couple was married, they were white, they were, as we would say, cis, you know, cisgendered, and espoused a very traditional marriage structure. You know, the labor between them was gendered. They're going to adopt a child. They talked about who was going to stay home to do the child rearing. Again, gay, but not what we would call queer, <laughs> right? Hallmark is still a privately held company in the heart of America, with multiple members of the Hall family remaining on the board of directors. The Halls have always trailed behind the times, but the company's ethos seems driven in large part by its customers. The people who buy greeting cards earnestly. The people who watch Christmas movies earnestly. And Tressie McMillan Cottom thinks it's important not to devalue those customers' feelings. It's not okay with me when people make fun of its audience. And I don't get cagey about that and upset because I am in the audience because I know I'm not the typical consumer. I get cagey about it because I think that consumer has retreated into Hallmark precisely because they feel like they're so often mocked and made fun of. And we mock them because they're women and we mock them because they're not rich and they may not be very sophisticated or, you know, they're not the beautiful people, perhaps. But I really don't like it when we make fun of the audience. I think it's safe to say that Hallmark would agree. In 1971, Hallmark's then editorial director made a sort of amazing comment. The media culture might be the point on the arrow, he said. We are the shaft. What percentage of people will read a book tonight? Two? Three? Today, 25 million people will send a greeting card. Hallmark introduced cards commemorating divorces, cards about addiction and recovery, cards that featured sarcastic humor, long after those things were commonplace in American life and on American TV. The company wasn't trying to drive the conversation. It had decided that its customers were ready and wanted to express those kinds of sentiments. The very nature of buying a Hallmark card is an incredibly earnest act. You can picture the person who wants to reach out, to comfort, to congratulate, to keep up a friendship, but feels they don't have the eloquence to do it in their own words. Hallmark's challenge has always been to stay squarely within this person's sense of what's appropriate, what's reasonable, what's normal. Get too far out ahead, you might lose them. Fall too far behind, and you're no longer relevant to the things that are happening in their lives. Hallmark customers might not exactly care enough to send the very best, but they care enough to send something. And that's not nothing. That's our show for today. This episode was produced by Jess Miller and Cleo Levin. Technical direction from Merritt Jacob. Gabriel Roth is Slate's editorial director for audio. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of podcasts at Slate. June Thomas is Senior Managing Producer of the Slate Podcast Network. Next week on the show, how do you get people excited about the world of cloud-based B2B software? It's kind of like a music festival, but for customer relationship management nerds. That's next week on Thrilling Tales of Modern Capitalism. 
If you like this show, consider supporting us with a Slate Plus membership. The first month only costs $1, and you'll be able to listen to this show ad-free. Plus, you'll get access to bonus content from the Slate Podcast Network. Sign up now at slate.com slash thrillingplus.